Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. I am Stephen Kilpatrick, your host for the evening. Of course, as our custom here at the Nook, I'll invite you to find a comfortable place to sit, something cool to drink, and perhaps something to sink your teeth into. However, this evening will be a bit different. A few weeks ago, I told you that Dan Raybarts and I were looking at putting a few of the narrated stories from Baby Teeth into a show. I asked Dan to send me over the ones that he thought represented the collected works the best, and he did. I said I liked them and asked him to send me over bios as well. I'd expected text for me to read to introduce authors and narrators alike. However, what I received was something so much more. At risk of letting Dan Raybart steal the show this week, 
He'll be doing nearly all of the hosting duties this week. And that will leave me to be able to refill glasses, clear plates, and apply iodine to whoever stumbled too closely to Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook. Before we tuck into the stories for the evening, I'd like to offer up a bit of an apology to the folks over at Drabblecast. Norm had passed on a promo for their Lovecraft Tribute Month, which is August. Well, we had an important delay on making good on airing that promo, but we'll be doing that today. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Drabblecast, if you're willing to take a stroll out of the District of Wonders and not already a subscriber. So swing on over there, rewind to the beginning of the month, and let Lovecraft find his way under your skin. Ah, actually, how about rewind just a bit further to episode 333 of the Drabblecast for Carrie Ryan's After the Cure. There aren't many stories that are set after the world ends, and I've enjoyed that sort of setting since Walter M. Miller Jr.'s A Canticle for Leibowitz. So, let this, albeit late, promo tantalize you, and then the voice you will hear after that for the next better part of an hour between six, yes, six stories, will be Tales to Terrify's old friend, Dan Raybart's. Cumulative dread of the unknown, the monstrous indifference of space and time, the lunatic spiraling into the abyss, the inhuman universe buried under the thin skin of humankind. Clearly, it's H.P. Lovecraft Month at the Drabblecast Audio Fiction Magazine. Seeds, seeds, they growed them. I seen it the first time this week. Must have got strong on Zenus. He was a big boy, full of life. It beats down your mind. It gets you, it burns you up into that well water. Oh, you was right about that, Hammy. Evil water. Zenus never came back from that well. Can't get away. It draws you. you. You know something's coming, but it ain't no use. I seen it time and again since Zenus was took. Where's Nabby Emmy? My head's no good. Don't know how long since I fed her. It'll get her if we ain't careful. Her face is getting to have that color. And sometimes toward night, Emmy, when it burns and it sucks, it come from some place where things ain't as they is here. H.P. Lovecraft, the elder godfather of weird fiction and cosmic horror, the creator of an epic mythos that inspires speculative fiction authors to this day. Each August, the Drabblecast podcast commissions original mythos fiction from some of your favorite authors, producing their twisted tales for the first time in full audio. Authors like Tim Pratt... This was an escape route. So what exactly were the creatures escaping from? Jay Lake. Oddly, she wore a latex skullcap, just like mine. And latex gloves, no different from my own. 
Her features were as familiar as my mirror. No, I thought, not again. Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Manette. Wasabi was probably dead by now, or dying. Wasabi, and Dog Collar, and, well, not dead. If they were lucky, they were dead. Because the opposite of lucky was those canisters the Mego were carrying. She hoped Dog Collar was lucky. And afterwards, you hear from the authors with background about the story and their process. I have upstairs neighbors, and one night this strange skittering clacking noise started up above me while I was lying in bed. I couldn't figure out what it was, and it turns out the neighbors were watching a dog for a friend, and what I heard was its claws clattering on the hardwood floors. But my mind had turned to far more ominous possibilities. Because a little scholarly wisdom never hurt anyone, right? The window bro the window www.drabblecast.org It's the antediluvian, cacodemoniacal, cyclopean, blab-o-whateverian event that critics everywhere are redundantly describing as indescribable. Act now. Shit up there is getting gibbous. Subscribe to the Drabblecast audio fiction magazine at www.drabblecast.org Good evening, Tales to Terrify listeners. My name is Dan Raybarts, and your fine host, Stephen Kilpatrick, has asked me to introduce you to tonight's clutch of stories, how they came about, and most especially, how Tales to Terrify played such an important part in bringing them about. One night, when I should have really been writing, I came across a Reddit.com thread on the net about the creepy things kids say and being keen on creepy stuff. I figured the thread might inspire a story or two. So, I created a Facebook group and invited some writer friends to post their flash fiction using the thread as inspiration. Just as a writing exercise, mind. A bit of fun. But the idea caught on, and soon more writers joined, all posting their stories to the page. Wonderfully creepy stories. Teeny tales of terror. Then someone piped up, suggesting the group create a collection and that we donate the proceeds to Duffy Books and Homes, a children's literacy charity whose goal is to introduce children to reading and books and foster a love of these things from a very young age. All hell broke loose. Writers writing a book about creepy kids doing and saying creepy things, all to raise money for kids, with a book that would not be appropriate for kids to read. Everyone wanted to help. There were offers of editing, publicity, audio production, A string of real-life baby teeth turned up, a writer's own teeth, for the cover art. When Sir Julius Vogel Award-winning author Lee Murray joined on as co-editor, and then Wellington indie publisher Paper Road Press agreed to take on the project, baby teeth, bite-sized tales of terror, began to look like more than just a pipe dream. A Pledge Me campaign, New Zealand's version of Kickstarter, was launched and quickly hit its goal. That was the point when Larry Santoro kindly came to the party, supporting the project with a stretch goal reward that supporters clamoured for. Electronic copies of Tales to Terrify Volume 1 for all backers if we hit our stretch goal, helping to ensure that the final tally exceeded expectations. 
What will always stay with me about this are Larry's reminiscences when he spoke about the project on the show. He recalled sitting with his popper as a boy, his finger trailing along the page under the words as he read to him, stories by Poe and Lovecraft and Hope Hodgson, filling him from a very young age with that same love for books and reading that Duffy Books and Homes works towards. So this was a project that Larry really felt good about supporting, and we will always be thankful to him for that. The result? Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, was launched in time for Halloween, just five short months after I spied the Reddit thread. An e-book followed, as well as an audio book, with all proceeds going to Duffy Books and Homes. Not yet a year on, Baby Teeth has surpassed all the group's expectations. As well as garnering some great reviews, it's been the recipient of a Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best Collected Work and two Australian Shadows Awards, including Best Edited Work and Best Short Story for Caterpillars by Debbie Cowens, the first of the stories sampled here tonight. Also in this selection are White by Starship Sofa regular Grant Stone, Winter Feast by Elizabeth Gattins, The Birthday Present by Sally McLennan, and Peter and the Wolf by Baby Teeth co-editor Lee Murray. The final story you'll hear tonight is The Dead Way by J.C. Hart, which also made the Australian Shadows Awards finals. Terminally creepy, this last story is definitely worth the wait. We hope you enjoy this taster from Paper Road Press and the Baby Teeth team. Baby Teeth is available in all formats, including paperback, ebook, and audiobook produced by Dynamic Ram Audio Productions. Go to www.paperroadpress.co.nz for full details. Once again, thanks to Tony and Larry and Tales to Terrify for their generous support of the project. We couldn't have done it without you. Caterpillars by Debbie Cowens, read by the author. For her fourth birthday, my daughter was given The Very Hungry Caterpillar, and it soon became her favourite book. Lucy loved to poke her fingers into the holes in the pages where the caterpillar had chomped its way through every kind of food. Real caterpillars, though, had proved a disappointment. Mummy, it won't eat the lollipop. I turned from the washing line to see Lucy standing behind one of the stripped swamp plants, holding a red lollipop out to a fat black and yellow caterpillar as it inched up the leafless stalk. Real caterpillars don't like sweets, or people food really, I explained, carrying the laundry basket over to join her. Monarch butterflies are very fussy eaters. They only like swan plants. Lucy picked up the caterpillar between her thumb and forefinger and lifted it across to a neighbouring plant. But there are no leaves left on this one, and it already has two baby caterpillars on it. They must have eaten them all. Lucy held the caterpillar to her face and gave it a stern look. Don't be too fussy. You have to eat the other leaves as well or you'll never become a butterfly. She placed it on a waxy leaf of the lemon tree. Come on inside now, Lucy. I need to get the washing in. But that wasn't the end of it. Late that night she appeared, standing over me by the bed. Mummy, she whispered in my face. We need another swan plant. It's hungry. Lucy? 
What are you doing up? It's starving. It needs food. What? I switched on the bedside lamp, the sudden yellow light shocking my eyes awake. The soft, unbroken snores beside me meant that the light hadn't disrupted Bill's sleep. Little did. A caterpillar. How is that all? Don't worry about it. I'll be fine. I muttered between yawns. Go back to bed. No, it's hungry. It won't get to become a butterfly. It'll just die. Something about her voice chilled me. Maybe it was just because I'd never heard her talk about death. Maybe it was the desperation in her voice and the way she cared so much about helping the little caterpillar. Maybe agreeing was just the fastest way for me to get back to sleep. Okay, sweetie, we'll get another swan plant tomorrow. We can plant it after kindy. Checking the caterpillar's progress became our post-kindy ritual. Lucy would count the caterpillars on each swan plant. We had six plants along the fence now and monitored their progress. Look, mummy, the caterpillar's peeled off its skin and it's gone into a chrysalusias. She pointed excitedly at the brown and green cocoon. Chrysalis. Last week's library trip had involved a book on butterflies with photos and life cycle explanations. How long until it becomes a butterfly? A week or two. You'll have to wait, Lucy. Lucy found the waiting hard. Impatient, she checked the swan plant three or four times a day and spent most of every Sunday afternoon playing in the garden where she could keep an eye on the chrysalises. Unfortunately, our cat, Mog, had also been enjoying the spring weather. She had killed several sparrows and a fledgling starlin, depositing their bodies in our hall, the bathroom, under our bed, and even in Lucy's room. If killing the poor birds wasn't bad enough, she's torn them to bits, I complained to Bill after finding a particularly disgusting mess of feathers and bloodied bird in Lucy's wardrobe. What if Lucy had found it? We'll have to put a bell on that cat. Thirteen days after Lucy found the first chrysalis, she came running in from outside to find me in the kitchen. Mummy, the butterfly has hatched. Come and see. Her excitement was contagious. I ran out behind her, thrilled to see one of our caterpillars had finally emerged as a beautiful red and black winged butterfly. Where is it? I asked as we approached the row of swan plant stalks. It hasn't flown away yet, has it? Lucy shook her head and pointed to the ground. There, drying on the bare earth at the foot of the plant, were two scarlet wings, veined with black like stained glass window. There was no creature attached to the torn fragments. What happened to the butterfly? I asked. Only the wings changed. I took its skin off, but it hasn't grown another chrysalusius yet. She pointed to the top of the swamp plant, where the flayed remains of a butterfly's body had been squashed into a ball and speared on the tip of a stalk. You mustn't do that, Lucy. I grabbed her arm with more force than I intended. You've hurt it. It won't grow another chrysalis now. It's dead. Lucy blinked at me. 
I'll have its wings. No, we'll bury the butterfly with its wings. And you must promise me you'll never do that again, okay? Okay, mummy. We buried the butterfly behind the swan plants. Lucy made a cross for the grave out of ice block sticks. But words like never don't have the same permanency with four-year-olds. I found four sets of torn butterfly wings in Lucy's dresser drawer the next week. I showed the wings to Bill after Lucy had gone to bed. We have to do something about it. I thought you said you'd told her off already. I did, but it was like she barely noticed. The look she gave me. It was just blank. Not upset or angry or anything. She's really scaring me, Bill. You're overreacting. Lots of kids pull legs and wings off bugs. It doesn't make them some psycho off one of your CSI shows. That wasn't what I meant. Guilt silenced me. What kind of mother would fear her own child? How could I suspect my sweet little Lucy with her freckles and curls and giggles? After that, we stayed indoors after kindy. I kept Lucy close. I read her stories and she helped me prepare dinner. I like peeling, peeling Mr. Potato, peeling Mr. Carrot, she sang as she stood beside me. I smiled. Lucy could make up a song to accompany any activity. Be careful with the peeler, sweetie. Remember, you always have to peel it away or you might cut yourself. Her eyes widened. It could cut me? Could it cut off your skin too? I didn't mean to scare you, honey, but they're sharp and you have to be careful so you don't get hurt. Lucy nodded and held out her vegetable peeler to me. Show me the curly peel again, mummy. Show me your Mr. Potato. I took the plastic handle and grabbing a large spud from the sink, spiraled the blade around the top of the potato. My granny showed me how to do this. She could peel a whole kumara in one long curling piece. Do you think I can do it without breaking the peel? Uh-huh, Lucy grinned. Ta-da! I dangled the long coil of potato skin in front of her, and she clapped and giggled, but then shrieked when I deposited it into the compost container. Mummy, no, don't throw it away. It's just potato peel, Lucy. Don't be silly. I want it, she growled. The determination in her eyes worried me more than the strange request. It's going in the compost. It's good for the garden, I explained. I didn't mention the potato peel to Bill. It would sound even crazier than the business with the butterfly wings. After dinner, Lucy seemed more like her usual sweet self. She sang her I Like Bubbles song at bath time. She was angelic for hair washing, scrunching her eyes shut and holding her breath like she was diving under waves as I rinsed out her hair. I like your skin. She grabbed my forearm as I wiped the water from her brow, her little fingers poking and feeling along my damp wrist. It feels nice. Oh, thanks. I pulled my arm back. Mummy, why don't people have wings? We're not born with them, sweetie. Neither are caterpillars. No, but they can grow them when they become butterflies. People don't become butterflies. No, silly, Lucy giggled. They die, 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 and then they become angels with wings.
She reached her dripping hands behind me in an awkward hug and squeezed the skin of my back where my wings would be. Lucy, stop it. That's not funny. I stood up, my voice stern to mask my fear, but she kept laughing. Bill, I called down the hall. Can you come down here? Lucy was still giggling when Bill reached the bathroom. I gave him the look, but he just grinned at Lucy. What's all this noise about? Is it you, little Miss Giggles, huh? He knelt down by the bath and splashed the water at Lucy, who squealed in delight. Don't, Bill. Don't what? Splash the giggle monster into submission? He joked. Go have a sit down. Relax. I'll take care of this. I watched him playing with our cute little girl, flapping and laughing in delight. Was my imagination running wild? How could I let the words of a four-year-old girl, my daughter, get under my skin? Okay, don't get her overexcited, I muttered. It's nearly bedtime. A glass of red and half an hour of TV blotted out most of my worries. By the time I kissed Lucy goodnight, she was just my lovely daughter again. I resolved to get a good night's sleep and headed to bed. My exhaustion was obvious as soon as I slid between the sheets. I could barely keep my eyes open and I fell asleep within minutes of turning the lights off. I woke up in the night with a terrible sense of danger. Unsure whether I'd had a nightmare or woken up to one, I blinked in the dark, my own breathing drowned out by Bill's heavy snores. A glint of something silver flashed a few inches from my eyes and a familiar shape stood by the bed. I want to peel off your skin, she whispered, her small hand pressed against my left cheek, the cold steel of the peeler on the other. You'll be a beautiful angel. Debbie Cowens is a writer and teacher who lives on the Kapiti coast of New Zealand. She co-authored Mansfield with Monsters with her husband Matt Cowens, and her short stories have appeared in a number of magazines and anthologies. Her first novel, Murders and Matchmaking, will be published by Paper Road Press later this year. It is a black comedy inspired by Sherlock Holmes and Pride and Prejudice. It features a serial killer and a pug with a taste for phosphorescent powder. Her garden generally is in need of weeding, but nonetheless continues to rate highly as an eatery for local caterpillars with a taste for swan plants. Tonight, she narrated her own story for us. White by Grant Stone Read by Dan Raybarts When she saw him walking up the path, chainsaw in one hand, jerry can full of two-stroke mix in the other, Maria ran to Susan and buried her face in her shirt. Don't let him do it, Mummy. Make him stop. Susan smoothed Maria's hair and spoke softly. It's okay, Peanut. We talked about this, remember? Maria was sobbing. 
He can't do it. He can't. Maria ran into the house as soon as Paul stepped onto the front porch. He could still hear her crying as she ran up the hall. Susan looked at the chainsaw. Put that in the garage. As far as Maria was concerned, there was no greater meal in the world than dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets, pasta, and a carrot on the side. But tonight, she wasn't eating. She nudged a stegosaurus around with her fork. Why? Peanut, you know we love you, Susan said. You know that, right? Maria nodded. Well, because we love you, Daddy and I want to buy a big house for you to live in. Don't you want a great big bedroom? Don't you want a pool? Yes. Maria's voice was no more than a whisper. But you can't chop down the tree. Peanut, I know you love it, but it's only a tree. When we move into our new house, there'll be lots of trees. It's Bobby's tree. If you cut it down, he won't have anywhere to live. Bobby can come and live with us in the new house. No, he can't. Maria moved so quickly the back of her chair didn't hit the floor until she was halfway up the hall. Susan stood, but Paul grabbed her hand. Wait. The book says not to give in to tantrums. Susan sat back down again. Maria's door slammed shut. Who's Bobby? Her imaginary friend. Soon as she comes home from kindy, she runs straight out to the tree. Even yesterday, in the rain, I took a coat out to her, but she was already soaked. Ran her a warm bath when she finally came in. She does this a lot. Every day for the past three weeks. Paul shook his head. I should have known that. Well, if you'd come home on time once in a while. Paul looked at his plate. He wasn't hungry either. Maria screamed again. Susan put down her knife and fork and stood up. Honey, Paul said. The book. Susan was already halfway across the room. Fuck the book. What's his name again? Bobby. Susan leaned in the doorway, a cup of coffee in her hands. Paul considered the tree. It was a big pine, maybe 20 years old. Pine wasn't protected. He didn't have to worry about a neighbour dobbing him into the council like he'd get with a pahutakawa. Sticky sap, needles all over the grass. Nobody gave a shit about pine trees in the suburbs. He tried to imagine what the section would look like when they were all done. The original house would stay where it was. He'd bowl the fence on the other side, run a thin driveway all the way to the back. Neither of the houses would have much garden, but people didn't care about that anymore. The tree was right where the living room would be. Or was it the tiny bathroom they'd sneaked in on the ground floor? Whatever. Build another house, sell both, buy a third. The Auckland Guide to Climbing the Property Ladder. They'd been lucky enough to buy one of the last houses in the street with a decent-sized section. The back lawn was so valuable, it might as well have gold buried under it. Maria peered around the back door. Hey, baby, Paul said. Come and sit on the grass with me. 
Maria shook her head and hugged her care bear. I was just talking to Bobby. Maria looked up. You were? Yes, we've been talking about the tree. I told Bobby that if he let us cut it down, he can come and live with us in the house. And when we move to the new house, he can come too. Would you like that? Maria stared for a long time. Paul kept up the smile until his cheeks hurt. You're a bad man, lying to your own daughter. Even by your standards, this is shit. But it wasn't any worse than telling her about Father Christmas or the Easter Bunny, was it? So, I'll get everything ready. Maria didn't move. A tear rolled down her cheek. Come on, Peanut, Susan said. Let's go back into the house. It's going to get pretty noisy. Paul put on the safety goggles and the earmuffs and the ridiculous arm and leg protection the man at the hire shop had insisted on. The chainsaw started on the first pull. Even with the earmuffs, it was incredibly loud. He revved the chainsaw a couple of times and walked towards the tree. Something hit him low in the back. Paul stumbled forward. The chainsaw hit the side of the tree and glanced away, barely missing his foot. He slipped on the wet grass and fell to his knees before the tree. Something hit him again, high on his back this time, strong enough to knock him over. Maria! Susan ran from the back step, but she too slipped on the grass. Liar! Paul rolled onto his back. Maria aimed another kick. Liar! Susan climbed to her feet and wrapped her arms around her daughter. Maria kicked out backwards, catching Susan on the shin. Liar! Maria's heels dug twin gouges from the lawn as Susan dragged her away. Sorry, Susan called. She got away. I'll lock the door. Paul didn't get up from the grass until he heard the click of the lock. Even when he put his earmuffs back on, he could still hear his daughter's screams. The original plan was to cut the wood up as he went and create a tidy pile. Paul still knew a few people with burners who would pay for a winter's worth of firewood. But either the chain was blunt or the tree was tougher than it looked. He found himself pushing the blade down, which the man in the hire shop had specifically told him not to do. The branches didn't cut clean. They broke away in ragged chunks with dangerous edges that would have sliced him if he hadn't been wearing the gloves. And all the time, Maria looking at him through the window like a ghost. Four hours later, he stood, trembling. The shattered remnants of the tree covered the whole backyard. He went to the shed for the shovel, slipping on pine needles as he went. He'd cut the trunk as low as he could. Now he had to dig out the roots. The spade cut through the soil with a satisfying thunk. There'd been rain nearly every day the past couple of weeks. Hopefully, the soil had softened a little. Perhaps this wasn't going to be as hard as he had thought. He heard the click of the lock on the back door. Come in and have something to eat, Susan said. It's been hours. Not yet, Paul panted. Nearly done here. His arms and back complained with every spade of dirt. He'd be sore for days, but if he stopped now, he'd never get started again. Nothing to do but tough it out. He glanced back at the house. Maria was out now too, 
sitting on the steps. Her cheeks were wet. Had she been crying all this time? Something broke under the shovel with a crunch. Maria screamed at the same moment, a long, high howl. Paul peered into the hole. There was something white shining there in the dirt. He reached for it. An old teapot, perhaps. Or... He scrambled back, heels slipping, until his boots lost purchase altogether. As he fell, he felt a branch leave a long scratch on his side, but it was a far away feeling, as if it were happening to someone else. Paul lay on the ground, looking at what he'd pulled up, what had been beneath the tree for so long. It grinned at him. It was a small thing, white against the sodden earth. The child couldn't have been more than five or six. The skull sat at an angle, its top shorn off by the spade. There were no other sounds in the world but his ragged breathing and the rushing of his own blood in his ears. That, and the sound of Maria, curled up on the back step, howling like a dog. Grant Stone's fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Shimmer, Semaphore, Starship Sofa, and Andromeda Spaceways in-flight magazine, and have twice won the Sir Julius Vogel Award. He lives in Auckland and has a very suspicious-looking tree at the back of his house. Tonight, Grant's story was read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning writer and editor of fantasy, horror, science fiction, and the odd things in between. His fiction can be found in numerous anthologies, magazines, e-zines, and podcasts, including Andromeda Spaceways and Flight Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Aurealis, Regeneration, and MidnightEcho.com. Baby Teeth is his first foray into the dark world of editing story collections. Find him lurking on the web at dan.raybarts.com or in the dusty corners of the house, bleeding words across a page. Winter Feast by Elizabeth Gatons Read by Tanya Milevich. It's my turn to... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be 
to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Feed the baby. Mom won't, and Nana, well, she says the weather is changing. Her bones always creak when the snow comes and crackle when there's a storm on the way. We've got both tonight. A snowstorm. I hope Daddy comes home soon. Mam made him go hunting, chasing him away from the fire with her tears and shrilling. There's no hunting to be had, though. No poaching, either. Not since the long winter set in. He told me he'd try to look for food in the village. But it's a bad place. I'm not allowed to go there in case the devil takes me. The villagers are all bursting with brimstone boils and sweating from the damnation fires. Nana got sick too, but Dad said it was head sick, not from the devil. And she's nearly cured now. Outside, the snow wants to settle, but the wind keeps scooping it up again, flinging flakes into the trees all around our home. Nana stares into the storm, grinning at something I can't see. I'd better bring her inside before she gets wet. I'd better bring her inside before she gets wet. I daren't stay away from the fire for too long. I daren't leave Mam alone with the baby. Dad says Mam is headsick too from the hunger, but she won't eat. Nana stopped eating long ago. I carry Nana back inside. So easy since there's hardly anything left of her. She used to have more meat on her bones. But now she's mostly eyes and grin. She creaks as we pass through the doorway, stiff with the cold, and I gently lay her down on the floor, away from the fire, away from Mam. The baby watches me, balancing on his awkward, fat legs, and he smiles. I smile back. Dad will be home soon. The storm comes in with Dad, dressing him in white rags, his hands are empty, empty as my insides. Mam looks up at Dad, at those horrible, empty hands, and she cries. No wonder she can't feed the baby. She's weeping herself dry. I don't cry, even though I'm starving. And the baby doesn't cry either, only when Mam holds him too tight. Dad stands in front of the fire, but he won't look at Mam. He looks at me. 
and I know it's my turn to feed the baby. I take his hunting knife, broken at the tip from chipping ice out of the river, and cut a thin slice of nearly cured meat. There's not much left, and it has to last us until the spring finally comes. Nana stares at me, grinning, and I pop the meat into my mouth, chewing to soften it for the baby. Hunger bubbles up from inside me. My mouth weeps like mam's tears, juices pooling on my tongue. I swallow the first mouthful. I can't help it, and mam isn't watching anyway. I steal a second bite and chew slowly on the third. I pluck the moist morsel from my mouth and feed it to the baby. He sucks at my fingers, trying to bite me with his one tooth. Greedy little darling. I pull my finger free and, at a nod from Dad, caught another slice of meat. As baby grows, Nana shrinks. There'll be nothing left soon. Dad hasn't eaten tonight, and I think he's getting headsick too. He won't talk to Mam, and he won't look at me anymore. He takes the knife from me and says he's going hunting out into the snowstorm. I know he's not coming back. He'll get lost and frozen, or be eaten by wolves. I tell baby not to worry, that we won't starve without dad. Spring can't be far away now. Don't worry, I say to him. We still have ma'am. Nana grins and the baby smiles. I smile back. Ma'am cries. Ever since she was a kid, Elizabeth Gatton sought to justify her stationary addiction. A career in extreme librarianship helped, working first with prisoners and then children, but always put her on the printed side of a book. Recently, she wondered if there was even more fun to be found on the other, yet-to-be-written side. There is. Her short stories have appeared online, an award-winning Australian writing 2012, and Regeneration, New Zealand speculative fiction too. Tonight, her story was read for us by Tanya Milojevic. Tanya originally came from Serbia to the United States when she was five, and is currently pursuing her master's in the field of special education, focusing on becoming a teacher of students with visual impairments. She has a cute eight-year-old guide dog named Wendell, a golden lab mix, who is a wonderful companion. She has been doing radio drama and voice acting for six years and runs a radio drama website at www.lightningbolt.podbean.com where she features shows that she has produced. She hopes to partake in the professional voiceover industry in the future. The Birthday Present by Sally McLennan Read by Jenny Sands My birthday dinners were family only. This is because of Ian. Ian is someone I can never talk to strangers about. He is a secret, apart from any person outside family. But for me, my relationship with Ian is non-negotiable. That, and my sick body, makes me keep other people at arm's length. I just don't trust them to like or understand me. So in lectures, I sit at the spot on the benches that has vacant seats all around. In group work, I am the quiet one. I don't drink. It only makes my bouts of nausea worse. So do coffee, overworking which doesn't involve much actual work, I'm just that frail, citrus, and a host of other things. Despite all this, I'm happy and never lonely. This is because of what my family calls my friendly little mental illness. After years of doctor's visits chasing a diagnosis that has never come, 
I think my health issues spring from a sick head, not a sick body. Yet my three immediate family members love me enough to let me be who I am, even if it has unnerved them or made them unhappy at times. This is why when mum suggests a birthday dinner, I always go, although it will tire me out and I will likely spend the next day sick in bed. I don't complain and I dress nicely for the occasion. I love my family. This year mum books a Chinese restaurant for my birthday eve. It's my 19th and Ian and I head along. When we get to Red Century, it's packed, but I quickly spot Mum, Dad and Alistair. I slip into the vacant seat, giving them a quick frown for not leaving a seat beside me to acknowledge Ian, and I pick up a menu without comment. Presents wait beside my place, and Ian nudges me to remind me to be polite. I put the menu back down and say hi, weakly. Thanks for all this, I add, and Mum beams. They have given me funky socks, which I like. E-book tokens. A self-help book titled Winning Kiwis and a pet rock. I wonder if the rock is Al's idea of a joke, a joke at my expense. I'm not going to talk to a rock, you know, I tell him, proud of the calm in my voice. Ian keeps silent, feeling the awkwardness of the moment. Poor placid Al. I didn't mean it like that, he says. I just thought with living in a flat, well, it's the only pet you can have. I feel like a bitch for doubting him. My younger brother is always loyal, and his often clumsy gestures are well-intentioned. Much like Ian, Al doesn't have a mean bone in his body. I made it myself, Al says, hopefully. I rub my thumb over the yellow zigzag meant to represent hair on the thing. It is kind of cute, I say, and he grins hugely. We'll find a special spot for it. What happens if you disagree? Al asks, teasingly. He already knows the answer. Ian and I never disagree. We eat, and the food is good. But from that point on, Mum and Dad are subdued. They agree to talk about Ian at any other time, but for some reason he's always been persona non grata at my birthdays. Not in a heavy way, yet I couldn't help but see it. Finally, after the plates are cleared and we're sipping green tea, Mum bursts out. Your father and I think there's something we should tell you. I've always wanted to tell you, but the counsellor at school said it wouldn't help you leave Ian behind. I am instantly furious. Any other talk like this has always resulted in me storming out and usually getting sick for a day or two afterwards. I hate it when people act like Ian isn't real, especially when they're meant to be on my side. Our side. I feel Ian tense. They won't hear him, but I expect an earful. Ian believes I've always hated him, no matter how they behave. I know what he means, yet sometimes Mum seems oddly attached to him, and Al can be positively fond of him. Only the thought of learning something Mum and Dad have kept secret prevents me from bolting for my scooter. I raise my eyebrows, willing Ian to keep shtum so I can listen. We've always wondered about Ian. Even when other people were questioning why you didn't grow out of your imaginary friend, we never wanted to. Now I think maybe we're to blame for Ian still being with you, Lisa. Mum's voice peters out. She wasn't making a whole lot of sense, and I suspect I won't like where she's going, but I know from experience she'll eventually spit things out if I just listen. To my surprise, Dad speaks next. Lisa, in the first scan before you were born, there were two heartbeats. The doctor told us to expect twins. We were really excited. Straight away we bought two cots and a two-seater buggy. Mum is damp-eyed. And I reach out to take her hand. Ian stays dead silent. Al looks horrified. I have an ache right in the middle of my ribcage and my throat has seized up. Something awful is coming. Dad puts one arm around Mum's back and continues. By the next scan, the second heartbeat was gone. 
The doctors said it was common for a smaller, weaker twin to be reabsorbed into the womb lining. I'm bewildered. Things aren't sinking in. How does that make Ian your fault? I asked. Oh, honey, Mum says. People are beginning to turn around and take quick glances at our table. I don't cope through... I didn't cope very well with losing your twin. It took me a long time to get my head straight and I got pretty bad depression. When you started talking about Ian, I... I wanted to think he was your twin and that he was with you somehow. I had this huge fear that you would go through life missing a piece of yourself. Mum is anguished. It was part of why we never told you, Dad says quietly. We thought you couldn't miss what you didn't know about. When Ian happened, neither of us could bear to discourage you. You used to talk to him, I say. And you never stopped. Dad answers with a sad smile. By the time you'd done it for a while, you'd get so mad if we suggested he wasn't real. So we just kept waiting for it to end. So it's not that you think Ian was my twin. My twin's ghost. It's that you think you made me believe in him. That you stopped me growing out of my imaginary friend. I can see them all bracing for my mega tantrum at the suggestion Ian isn't even as real as a ghost. Ian himself is very still. But I'm busy absorbing the idea that to other people I have been one of two, and not just to myself. That and Mum's incredible grief. Giving back this part of me is cutting her to pieces. Dad draws a ragged breath. I think we all need to let go now, Lisa. Your life could be so much better. I'm sorry. I get up, but not to storm out. Pain rips through my gut. As quickly as I stand up, I fall to the ground, toppling my seat. I end up tangled in its metal legs. Pain. I hear cries of dismay. Someone is dialing 111. I hear the words fainted and argument. Pain. Movement. A nauseating, vertiginous, swooping passage. Pain. Voices. She's bleeding. Time passes. Then I'm in a brightly lit hollow and clanking sounds come from all around. Soft music is playing. Pain. Voices. Lie still now. This is the worst part, okay? I am rolled onto my side, smoothly, professionally, and an injection slides into my lower back near my spine. I take gasping breaths, unable to speak. Relax now. Relax. It's done. They roll me back. Someone smiles at me. People move around me. I try to shift, to regain command of my body, but sheets tuck me tightly against the bed. A table is put above my chest and I cannot see over it. I'm in surgery? Another reassuring smile. The pain is gone, but I feel dazed. They explain something, but I can't hang on to what they say. I fall into a blank state. Whatever happens isn't up to me. I am awake, but unconnected to all the people around me. Their expressions are so focused, and I can't understand what they say, but it doesn't bother me. There is a vascular pedicle on the right renal artery. See? That's where it gets most of its blood. Clamp. I cannot see whoever is talking. They are very busy somewhere between the table and the bottom of the bed. I am a long time under the white light. Small clanking sounds. Bad smells that should flip my stomach. I drift, but I don't feel sick, and I don't hurt. Finally, I'm able to lift my head a little. Send it to the lab for biopsy, one of the masked workers is saying. 
a bloody lump is put into the kidney-shaped bowl on the table above me. For a moment, I see hair. A nurse hurriedly snatches the bowl off the table and puts it on another surface. I turn my head, dragging the line of the oxygen mask with me. I see. A rounded mass covered in hair and blood. Teeth. An arm with a tiny, perfect hand. It rests in an opened membrane sack. The hand lifts towards me once. Sally McLennan writes like an addict does blow. She just can't help it. The words are in her system and the buzz is irresistible. She can be found most nights gripping her pen in a sweaty paw to write fairy stories, horror, erotica, children's stories, science fiction and YA fantasy. Previous publications include the children's picture book Deputy Dan and the Mysterious Midnight Marauder and she has a YA series in the process of being published. When she is not in the throes of the muse, Sally enjoys fooling around with her Clydesdale and hanging out with fellow geeks. Tonight, Sally's story was read for us by Jenny Sands. Jenny grew up in Wellington, trying hard not to believe that her toys came alive in the night or that witches lived under the bed. Now growing up, she believes even worse things. Jenny has been published in Enamel, RPG Girl and Filament magazines, as well as a very short story on nanoism.net and a previous collaborative book called The Event. She has also self-published a role-playing game about teen supernatural romance called The Silver Kiss of the Magical Twilight of the Full Moon. Peter and the Wolf by Lee Murray Read by Chris Barnes The wolf is back. I can hear it when I press my ear to my pillow, its great paws padding and pacing about under my bed, ragged yellowing claws catching on the wooden floor. Crunch, crunch. Crunch, crunch. I press my ear against the pillow to block the sound, but still it comes. Crunch, crunch. I'm too scared to shout. The sound stalling in my throat. The wolf comes at night, a lone male with yellow gleaming eyes and blood-blackened teeth. The hero on my pillowcase is useless against the wolf. His cape flapping, Superman throws his fist into the sky and does nothing. The wolf has been visiting me for a long time now. I've learned that the more frightened I become, the more frenzied it becomes, the sound of its steps getting faster and faster as it paces under my bed. It's as if it's learned to smell my fear. I slow my breathing so the wolf stays calm. But one night soon, the wolf is going to eat me. Perhaps he's waiting for me to be fatter, like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. He comes back most nights to see if I'm ready. I think it'll be soon, because he's getting bolder. I can smell him now, sharp and metallic, like the taste of blood after a paper cut. The door opens, letting in the shaft of cheery yellow light from the hallway. Dad comes in. I almost weep with relief. The wolf doesn't show itself. It's afraid of my parents. It slinks away somewhere. I don't know where. Michael, have you wet the bed again? The wolf is here. Now that's enough. I don't want to hear any more stories about wolves. I've told you, there are no wolves in New Zealand and there are no wolves under your bed. The bathroom is just across the hall, just there. Angry, he throws out his arm. It's the third time this week. We expect this kind of thing from Peter. You're eight. That's too old to be wetting the bed. His face softens. Come on then. I scramble to my feet. He picks me up. 
his hands on either side of my waist, and lifts my feet clear of the wolf's fangs. My face smooth against his stubble, he carries me to the bathroom. Holla! He's wet the bed again! In the room next door, I hear Mum slap down her book. She comes to the bathroom where Dad is helping me strip off my wet pyjamas and leans against the door. Dad turns the shower on. Mum asks, You okay here? Dad says nothing, but I see the face he pulls. I'll strip the bed then, she says, and she pads away. Later, when I am clean and dry, I lie on my back and watch the light from the hall. Under my bed, the wolf is still. I strain to hear, but he can be cunning. For the moment, there are no footsteps. The light flickers for an instant. Did the door just move? Open, close, yes. The wolf has gone, but where? Is it roaming around the house? I imagine the wolf nosing open the door to my brother's room, where Peter is asleep in his low toddler bed. My blood freezes and I tremble. Peter! Instinctively, I know the wolf is in Peter's room. In my mind, I see it circling Peter's bed with its yellow teeth and sly eyes. There isn't enough space under Peter's bed for a wolf. Mum tried to slide my old train set under there to get it out of the way, but it wouldn't fit. I have to do something. Peter's just a baby with chubby baby fingers and folds of skin at his wrists. He can't do anything for himself like I can. He needs help to put on his T-shirt or do up his car seat. I get up. Sliding open the top drawer of my bedside table, I take out the pocket knife Grandad gave me for Christmas and prise it open, my fingers shaking and sweaty. My heart races as I creep into the hall. Peter's door is open. I was right. The wolf is in there. I grip my knife hard, my knuckles white and peep around the door. I see its hulking grey shape on the bed, standing over Peter. It opens its mouth, dripping saliva, its yellow eyes gleeful. No, I won't let it eat, Peter. I won't. I charge at the bed, my tiny knife held high. I thrust and thrust again. I'm close to it now, inhaling ammonia and milk. My blood pounds. The creature howls in frustration. It wasn't expecting me, but still it fights back, clawing at me. I slice out with my knife, knowing I must throw every bit of my weight behind it. The little blade ploughs deep, touching bone, grinding. Warm blood runs down my hand, but the wolf isn't dead. With a whimper, it bounds away. Then in that instant, the game changes. Suddenly, I am the hunter. I chase it, stabbing at it from behind. Light floods the room. Blinded, I don't see the wolf make its escape. Oh my God! My mother screams. My eyes adjust. The room is awash with blood. On the bed, on the floor. Peter's fingerprints streak the walls where he has tried to get away. Now, he lies on the floor in his Thomas the Tank Engine pyjamas. His body ripped and oozing where the wolf's teeth have sunk deep into his torso. On her knees... My mother wraps her arms around him and rocks his little body to and fro. I'm too scared to move. I think my brother may be dead. My father approaches. Ducking down to my level, he uncurls his fingers and removes the knife. It's okay, Michael, he says. It's over now. My fingers are sticky with blood. I look at them in surprise. The wolf was here, I whisper. And this time... 
that notes. Lee Murray writes fiction for adults and children, for which she has been lucky enough to win some literary prizes. She is currently working on three novels, one of which could be bigger than Hobbits. Lee wishes she were edgier than she actually is, a fantasy that recurs when she's folding the washing. Her story tonight was read for us by Dynamic Ram audio producer Chris Barnes. Chris is an audiobook narrator and producer from Scotland. He has narrated several horror genre novels and is the voice of the High Moor series. You can usually find him in a small soundproof cupboard, finding new ways to terrify audiences. The Dead Way by J.C. Hart, read by Amanda Fitzwater. It was awfully quiet, too quiet for life with my child. I padded down the hallway and poked my head into Sadie's room to find her staring out the window. Hey, what's up? I crossed the room when she didn't turn and knelt beside her on the bed, my swollen belly coming between us. Sadie? She shook her head, making her dark hair shimmer. Then she shuddered and unlatched her gaze from the street before turning towards me. I'm sorry, Mummy. I frowned and brushed a strand of hair back from her face. What for? A line of tears marched single file down her cheek, but she wiped them away before they reached her chin. It's Hugo. He's gone. A flutter of panic beat in my chest. Hugo had been my closest companion since before I met Sadie's dad, before she'd been born. The dog was getting old now, but still. What do you mean, he's gone? He got out the gate. He went down the dead way and he's not coming back. Sadie bit her lip and gave another little shudder. I sighed in relief. It's a dead end, sweetie, because it doesn't go anywhere, remember? but it does go somewhere. The depth of her eyes spoke of things I was unable to grasp. I shook off the finger of fear that was tracing my spine and stood. Daddy's going to be home soon, and then I'm going to go look for him. He won't have gone far. No, no, Mummy, you can't. She sprang from the bed and latched onto my legs, her head buried in my side. I won't be gone long. I'll take his treats and he'll come back. Don't worry. You can't go down the dead way, Mummy. They want you too. At least that's what I thought she said. I tried to prize her off, but she was doing a perfect impression of a limpet. The door slammed downstairs and I sighed, tugging her up my body until she was nestled against my shoulder, her leg hooked over the curve of my bump. Come on, Daddy's home. I headed to the stairs, but when we got to the top, Sadie grasped my head in her hands and forced me to stop. You can't go down the dead way, she whispered. I have to find Hugo, honey. I shook my head, trying to be patient. I keep telling you, there's nothing scary about a dead end. I'll stop you, mummy. Sorry. She kissed my cheek, her eyelashes tickling my forehead as she did before slipping down. She looked at me one more time, eyes as dark as her hair, and then she jumped. Sadie! The scream tore from my lungs and I charged down the stairs, trying to stop her tumble, but she was always just out of reach a million miles away. She hit the landing below, and I swallowed back the bile in my throat at the sight. 
eyes closed, bruises blooming on her body, arm bent awkwardly. Nathan! Nathan, quick! Get an ambulance! He entered the hall, his face blanching. What? Oh my! He grabbed the phone and hit speed dial, pacing frantically, his footfalls echoing the patter of my heart. Sadie, can you hear me? Honey, mummy's here. I touched her neck, leaned down to feel the tickle of her breath on my cheek. She's breathing, Nathan, but tell them to hurry. I wanted to pull her into my arms, but I couldn't move her for fear of making it worse. My tears splashed on her forehead, but still she didn't stir. Come on, come on. Later, after we were all home, I lay on the couch against Nathan's chest, a mug of chai tea in my hand. Twin sorrows ate at me. The missing dog and the child who was so desperate to stop me from looking for that dog that she would throw herself down the stairs. Something's wrong with her, you have to admit it now. She's always been a little quirky, but this, I don't even... I closed my eyes, but the image of her face, her eyes, before she jumped was there, burned into my brain. It's the baby, she's already jealous. Are you sure she didn't just trip? I mean, it could have been an accident. I pushed myself up and glared at him, the warmth of his chest no longer comforting. You weren't there. I saw the look on her face, Nathan. She apologised before she jumped. She's only six, Megan. I just... He shrugged, not willing to admit there could be a problem. I shook my head, trying not to feel disgusted with him. I'm going to find Hugo. Keep an eye on her. I just... I need some fresh air. I grabbed my coat and the dog lead before heading out the door. I didn't want to see her right now. There were too many bruises on her face, and the cast looked too big for her small body to support. And heaven forbid if she woke. Who knew what she might do to stop me this time? The night air bit into my skin, and I winced, focusing on the task ahead. Hugo needed me now. What on earth had forced him off the property was beyond me, as he'd never wandered before. Hugo! I called as I crossed the street and headed down the dead end. Dead way, if Sadie was to be believed. She'd always had an amazing imagination, but this was beyond weird. The street light above me sputtered and fizzed out, leaving me in a pool of darkness. I glanced back at the house. All the lights were on, which gave me some comfort until I turned back to the dead end and found that it was now pitch black. I shuddered, unable to quell the feeling that something definitely wasn't right. Still, Hugo needed me, and being afraid of the dark was childish. I walked on, keeping my stride long, aiming to look more confident than I felt. The air got chillier as I went, numbness seeping into my fingers. I tucked them under my armpits. Hugo, come on boy, time to come home. I cast one more look back at the window. I could see a small silhouette in Sadie's room. The hand of her unbroken arm was pressed against the window, and though I couldn't hear her, I knew she was screaming for me. Quit being stupid, Megan. Don't let her get to you. I took a deep breath, the chill dusting my lungs. Hugo, come on, this is stupid. I kicked at the pavement, annoyed at my dog and my daughter, 
but mostly myself for letting her creep me out like this. A low whimper sounded from a bush ahead. Hugo, is that you? I called, keeping my voice steady. He shot out toward me, his belly concave and his teeth bared like he'd been wild for a week, not a few hours. A low growl hung on the air as he snapped at my outreached hand. Bewildered, I snatched it back, shrinking in on myself. What's gotten into you, boy? It's me. I reached out slowly, gauging his movements. He sniffed at the ear and whimpered again, his face drooping into puppy melancholy for just a moment before he grabbed my hand between his teeth and bit down. My scream frightened him and he let go, running back the way he'd come. Hugo! Laughter drifted from the same direction. Or was it in my head? I couldn't tell. I glanced back, but I couldn't see the house. In fact, not a single light shone. It was as though the entire street, the whole city had disappeared. Looking for something? This time, I knew it was definitely inside my head. Mist rose from the ground, clouding the air and making it impossible to see the way back home. Your daughter bargained for you, and yet, here you are. Who's there? I'm not speaking to you until you come out. We don't need to talk. You've kindly provided the vessel. I felt it then, something wet creeping up my leg. At least it felt wet, and it felt real, but when I felt for it there was nothing there, nothing but the sensation of something moving on my skin, through my skin, settling inside me. I doubled over, my belly cramping, the baby kicking, and I knew why it wanted me. I knew why Sadie had let the dog out, and why she'd tried to stop me. Mummy! Sadie? Her voice pulled me to my feet, and I stumbled toward it. Sadie! Mummy, come home! Sadie! I ran. My legs were awkward beneath me, but I ran, feeling her draw me back from the dead way. Suddenly the lights were back on, and the house was across the street, and Nathan was there with Sadie in his arms, both looking fearful. Oh, Sadie! I gathered her up, not caring about the wound to my hand, forcing my mind from the heaviness in my womb, and nuzzled my head into her neck. I'm so sorry I didn't listen. It's okay, Mummy, she whispered. You came back. I did. Where's Hugo? Nathan asked. He's gone. I shook my head, not wanting to speak of him or anything else. Let's go inside. Nathan nodded and headed across the road to the house. I looked back at the dead way and shivered. Sadie pulled my face to hers and kissed me on the cheek. You brought a bad thing back, she whispered. I know, honey. I bit my lip, trying not to cry. We're going to have to kill it. I know. J.C. Hart is a mother to three girls and a writer of mostly speculative fiction. She has had stories published both online and in print anthologies, and as much as she loves ebooks, feels that nothing can quite replace the joy of seeing her name printed in a paper book. She co-edited Tales for Canterbury, an SJV-winning anthology, and you can find her online at just-cassie.com, blogging about whatever takes her fancy. 
Tonight, her story was read for us by Amanda Fitzwater. Amanda Fitzwater is a New Zealand speculative fiction author of The Dragon Persuasion that shares a desk with a solar-powered cat. Their work can be found in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Cross Genres Magazine and Wiley Writers, and they are part of Clarion UCSD Class of 2014. Thank you, Dan. Tales to Terrify, under the leadership of Lawrence Santaro, was more than happy to help such a project, and I hope that our little corner of the District of Wonders can contribute to such projects again in the future. In the show notes, you'll find links to the Drabblecast and to where you can find Baby Teeth in its entirety from Paper Road Press in either paper fibers, electrons, or captured sound waves. You've heard six of the stories tonight, but the collection has 37 stories in total, so you're just getting started. I'd like to thank Mr. Ravarts again for contributing so much to our episode this week. I'll bid all of you farewell on behalf of him as well as all of us at Tales to Terrify. Take care of yourselves and of each other as you leave the nook. Come see us again next week. Oh, and pleasant dreams. Mm? Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.